This morning we deal with a, a passage of scripture. You heard a little bit of it read by Lumo this morning, and we will uh, read some more of it as we go along. Um, it's the story of Jesus, uh, Jesus' baptism. And as you read it there in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, it's only two verses, two verses. Two verses about the baptism of Jesus in a very important event. As we learned a little bit later in our text, and when we get to reading the rest of that, Jesus is about 30 years old at this time. My best calculations, uh, when I did a timeline of this, I would place him at 32 years old, late in the year 27 uh, AD. And so this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Luke places Jesus' baptism right in the midst of the crowds that are sharing in their response to John, to John, John the Baptist's proclamation. We talked about that uh, some last week, that he proclaimed a baptism, a plunging in water, a plunging in the Jordan River, out in the wilderness there, as a sign of a change of heart, a change of orientation of thinking, a change of mind, uh, that the, to use the word that we, that, uh, we, that's usually used in the translations, repentance. It's the Greek word metanoia that we've talked about in other contexts many times, this change of mind. <clears throat> and then he promises that God intervenes within this process <clears throat> by forgiving sins. And that that's a sign of the renewal of God's people and of the coming of God's kingdom, that these are at hand. So this, these are those two verses just that have so much in them. Luke 3, verses 22, 21 and 22. Now it happened as all those people that had come to John were being plunged in water. And when Jesus also was plunged in water and was praying, the realm of God was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily appearance as a dove. And a voice came from God's realm, that is from heaven. You are my son whom I love. In you I take delight. Luke describes this event with all of its importance and all of its weight. He describes it very simply. And in the midst of all the crowds, and, and he focuses on the two signs, the Holy Spirit, the sign of the Holy Spirit, and the sign of the voice from God. Jesus as God's beloved son, God's delight, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. As we see in, in the Gospel of Luke, both in the description, we've talk, called attention to this when we were talking about the description of Jesus' birth, and we'll see it again when we get to the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke interprets these tr tremendously important events, not <clears throat> by a detailed narration of the event itself, but by a narration of the things surrounding the event, so that we see them. Often... Often the most important events are just said in a couple of words, three or four words. Very little is, uh, is said about them explicitly. <clears throat> but we're given a context in which to, to think about them. And in the immediate surroundings uh, here within our text, the, the verses that immediately precede the story of Jesus, these two verses of Jesus' baptism and the, and the verses that follow here, it's preceded by John's ministry and John's arrest especially John's arrest. And then it's followed by a long genealogy of all things. 
when we look at a little bit at the, uh, the broader context of it, and you think back, um, we've been engaged now in this uh, journey in the Gospel of Luke for a while, and where we, if you remember where we started, was not at the very beginning of, of Luke, but we started with Luke chapter 4, when Jesus went to Nazareth. And his first sermon in that, uh, or his sermon there, was the first sermon in this series, but this Jesus sermon there that sort of set the tone, set the agenda for his whole, whole ministry. He goes to his hometown, to his hometown synagogue, and he reads from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And it sounds like an echo of our text today, interpreting the Lord's Spirit as the anointing of the Messiah, as his anointing, as the anointed king. That's what Messiah means. He reads, when he goes into the synagogue and he's given the scroll and he finds the passage that says, the Lord's spirit is on me because he anointed me to announce good news to any who are poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He set out set out release any who are oppressed to proclaim a welcome year of the Lord. Then a few moments later, Jesus adds, today this scripture has been fulfilled as you were listening to it. Or if you go the other direction, that's sort of after our text, if you go to the very beginning of the gospel, think about Luke chapter 1 went and talked to, uh, I'm sorry, when Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, went and talked to Mary. <clears throat> high will overshadow you. Therefore, the one to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. So when we come to these two verses, we're not just dependent on what these two verses say. We have, have a whole surrounding narrative that they are part of. Glory and promise surround these, these events as they unfold for us here. Let's set that over there. All of this over here. But, at the same time, when you look at the, the verses that describe the baptism of Jesus in the immediate context, there, it can sometimes, it, well, it does look a little strange, as I've already said. The things that happened right before are, are the imprisonment of John, and right after is this long genealogy. And so it, it can be a, a, a little bit strange. We start with Luke chapter 3, verses 19 through 38 is the first part of our, our text for today. But Herod, the regional ruler, the Tetrarch, because John... <laughs> hey there, bye-bye. Uh, because John reproved him for what he did with Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that he did, added this also to them all, Herod locked John up under guard. And he's about to tell about John baptizing Jesus. It's a little strange to have him talk, have it talk about locking John up under guard just before that. And a lot of commentaries, when they come to this, say, oh, well, he's, he's uncomfortable with John baptizing Jesus, and he wants to keep his distance. I don't believe so. This is not to distance Jesus from John. Luke has given so much space in the early, these early chapters to the story of John, to the promise of John, to his birth, to the prophecies about him and all of that. If he, if he had had some, some queasiness about John, he wouldn't have gone to all of that depth. Luke gives a lot of emphasis to John as a prophet of God. And so it's, it's not that sort of thing, but what 
is it as John is proclaiming this plunging in water, as he's proclaiming this change of heart for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus, as he comes, really comes to embody that, that new orientation of heart and life. Rather, I think, if I can understand this, that Luke is forestalling a common expectation, helping us and our minds to forestall a common expectation. That anyone who's really doing God's work and is going, to, going, is going to be blessed, he's going to be blessed with long life, he's going to be blessed with success, he's going to be blessed with overcoming all enemies and all of those kinds of things. And that is something that has long been part of the thinking of so many people. If God's on our side, we will, we will win and, and so forth. God will bless us if you're doing God's work. Rather, Luke knows where the story is going and helps us along the way. It is that the glory of God's Son, like the glory and the greatness of the prophet, does not by any means protect from suffering. Just like Mary being the mother of Jesus, being this amazing woman who has received God's grace and so forth, does not protect her from what Simeon said of the sword piercing through her soul. The story is going to be much more complicated than ordinary expectations of a victorious Messiah King can ever take in, especially as it might, those expectations might be elicited when that Messiah is marked by amazing signs like the dove, the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove and the and the voice of God. And so, as, so we, as we come back, and I just want to read those two verses, because it's only two verses again, about Jesus' baptism. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now it happened as all those people were being plunged in water, and when Jesus also was plunged in water and was praying, the realm of God... In Greek, Uranos, the heavens, the realm of God was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a bodily appearance as a dove, and a voice came from God's realm, you are my son, whom I love, in you I take delight. Baptism here, in Jesus' baptism, this time and all that it means, brings together here, in these, just in these two verses, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Father around the Son in the unity, the community of love that is God. Sometimes we use that technical term, the term trinity for it, or triunity that there is three in one, that God is one but complex and deep and, and of a nature that in its very self, in the very nature of God, has love built into it. It's part of the challenge of how to speak of a God who is so great, so wonderful, so one and yet so complex and can manifest himself in so many ways. 
The spirit, of course, is emphasized here is through the, the dove, and the spirit is something that's going to be all the way through the story. It starts back there in chapter 1 that we read of Gabriel, that the spirit is there in incarnation. It's the power of God being embodied in Jesus. But then as we go along, and we, as we've seen already, and we'll see again and again, that it is the power throughout Jesus' ministry. Or he is the power throughout Jesus' ministry, the spirit working in Jesus and through Jesus. And then as you're aware, Luke wrote another volume, namely the book of Acts. And if you remember that transition from Luke to the gospel of Luke to Acts, part of it is that there is not to be anything happening in the, book, in the next volume, so to speak, until the Holy Spirit comes. That's the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit at, at Pentecost. Jesus says to them, wait. Wait for the, for the power from on high. Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the first great thing is that are those signs that come. And again, it's not... It, signs come not in the same sense as the dove, but, but the signs nevertheless of the fire and the wind and so forth. But as you even think back in the other Gospels, that emphasis on the dove at Jesus' baptism, that, that sign or, or as a dove is, is something that's there. And especially in the Gospel of John, when, when, G, when John the Baptist is bearing witness about Jesus and he's got disciples around him, he sees Jesus approaching him. This is in the Gospel of John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. We're going to read especially verses 32 and 34 in a moment. That day he sees Jesus coming to him and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he begins to explain it. And it's hard to get your mind around exactly how he's saying it because the, it's sort of the grammar is all so, so, so difficult that it's, it's challenging even to grasp it. This is the one about whom I said... After me, a man is coming who came to be in front of me because he was first in comparison with me. And I myself didn't know him. But it was in order that he may become clearly manifest to Israel that I myself came plunging people in water. And then the part there that you'll have on your, on your sheet if you have the, the notes for, for the sermon today... John 1, verses 32 and 34. And John bore witness with these words. I've beheld the Spirit descending as a dove from God's realm, and he remained upon him. And again he repeats, I, I, I myself didn't know him. But the very one who sent me to plunge people in water told me, when you see the Spirit descending and remaining on someone, he is the one who plunges people in Holy Spirit. And I myself, John says, have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. And so the sign here at Jesus' baptism then expands in the signs at Pentecost when the sound of a great rushing wind and what looks like tongues of fire comes upon uh, the, the people there as, as uh, the Spirit descends uh, upon them.
So, as baptism brings all of these things together, we, we, uh, we see the role of the Spirit as part of the heart of Jesus. And then that voice comes. You are my son whom I love. And that, just that phrase just echoes deep in Scripture. <clears throat> Maybe most painfully, it goes back to Abraham and Isaac in the story in Genesis 22, where God commands Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice on one of the mountains that I will show you. Abraham knows that Isaac is a total gift of God and that God has promised that the whole future is going to come from Isaac. God's promise that all the future is going to come from Isaac has to be fulfilled somehow. But he cannot see how. It's going to happen, where God's going to go. He's confident that God is going to fulfill his promise as he's waited for Isaac all these years. And so he goes through and, in a sense, tests God as God tests him through that story. Your son, whom you love. Or later in the book of Exodus, when the Israelites, those descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, are, are in slavery. God comes to them, and through Moses sends that word to Pharaoh. He said, thus says Yahweh, this is Exodus 4, verses 22 through 23. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go, that he may worship me. Or then coming down, famous passages just hitting spots along the way. David's son, the one who will be the symbol of the Messiah, the anointed king to be the successor to David. The Messiah is son of God as a human king. The promises in 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 16, but Notice just some, some phrases from those, those verses. When your days are fulfilled, God says to David, and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom, and I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me, and I will not take my steadfast love from him. Or again, the servant in Isaiah, those famous servant passages. One is... Isaiah uh, chapter 42 verses 1 through 4 is quoted in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12 to apply to, to Jesus in, in Matthew 12, 18 through 21. Behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul delights. I'll put my spirit upon him and he'll proclaim justice to the nations. He won't quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he won't break, and a smoldering wick he won't put out till he brings justice to victory. And in his name, nations will hope. So here in our brief narrative, God gives a simple, emphatic statement. You are my son whom I love. In you I take 
delight. What does it mean? What does it mean? Does it mean that nothing bad can happen to him? If God takes delight in him, how can anything bad happen? The answer to the question, just given in that phrase, in that statement, that's embodied there, the answer to it is the whole gospel. The whole gospel tells the playing out. That's the journey of the gospel. That's the journey to know God. What is God's delight that's going to come in Jesus? And it turns out that God's delight, Jesus' delight, the, the Spirit's power includes you and me. It includes all of our brokenness. It includes human sin and suffering. It includes conquering death. It includes creating new life. It includes bringing all peoples into one body in this one that is being baptized that day. The paradox becomes explicit in Luke in Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. The multifaceted meaning of Son of God becomes the center of the accusation for which Jesus is crucified. Look at Luke chapter 22, verses 61, 66 to 71. That, again, very brief description of a, of a whole trial. As day came, the elders of the people, and I've left out some few phrases here, led him off to their Sanhedrin. They said, if you are the Messiah, the anointed king, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said, if I tell you, you certainly won't believe. But from this time on, the Son of Man, reference to Daniel 7, will be seated at the right hand of the power of God, an echo of Psalm 110. So they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And he said, You yourselves are saying that I am. Then they said, Why do we need more testimony? We've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. I think it's hard for us to put all of it together and know how they heard it from his own mouth. But that's what it came where is god where is god's delight what is god doing how could it possibly be in this in this person and it starts from that call to jesus that that designation of from god you are my son whom i love and you i delight <sighs> Well then, after two verses on Jesus' baptism, Luke goes on in the latter part of our text for today, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, hmm, with 15 verses of genealogy. And I, I'm going to put you through it. I'm sorry. I'm going to read it to you. Hmm, because Luke takes the time to put it here. And it... And it's not just intended just to punish me and to punish you. Um, when we were talking about this, I wanted to get Lumo to read it because it's 
hard to have somebody read all of these names that are there. But Luke wants us to go through it. And you think, I mean, you've just had this grand scene of the, of the baptism. Why follow that with this? Listen, Jesus, this begin, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. Jesus, when he began, was about 30 years old. That's talked about that a moment ago. Being the son, as he was considered, or as he was supposed, and notice, just notice that phrase of kind of distancing there. Being the son, as he was considered, of Joseph, son of Eli, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Mattathias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Maath, son of Mattathias, son of Semen, son of Yosech, son of Jodah, son of Joanan, son of Resa, son of Zerubbabel. Ah, a name that you might know from the scriptures. None of the others since Joseph would you know. Son of Shealtiel. Ah, another name that is there in the scriptures, going back about 500 years. Son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adai, son of Kosam, son of Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eliezer, son of Joram, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph. It's their whole run there where there's every generation has the name of one of the tribes. Son of Eliakim, son of Meleah, son of Minah, son of Matatha, son of Nathan, son of David. Ah, about a thousand years have gone by. Son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salah, son of Nashon, son of Aminadab, son of Admon, son of Arni, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. Another thousand years have clicked by. Son of Terah, son of Nahor. From here on, it's all names that if you read Genesis, you would have run into. Son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Kalnan, son of Arphaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalaliel, son of Kainan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Doesn't go past that. Seventy-six generations back to Adam. Long periods of, of time. If you kind of want to get a structure in your mind of this, this long period, if you think back 500 years basically back to Zerubbabel and Shealtiel when the second temple was built in the time of Haggai and so forth. A, a thousand BC is David 
almost exactly, not, you know, they lived then. 2000 BC is Abraham almost exactly. Before Abraham, there's this kind of parabolic time in Genesis when people lived many hundreds of years, usually just a little less than 900 years. It's imp it was important for people then, even as it may sort of be painful just to read it like that for us, but it's also important for Luke. Because as we see as he gets to the end of it, it adds to the meaning of Son of God, as God spoke to, to Jesus. And I want to just note that we have no idea of the source from which this genealogy came. People compiled genealogies and, and so forth, and we simply don't know uh, where this one was came from. We also have a genealogy in Matthew, and that's what causes the problem because the genealogy in Matthew is strikingly different from in, in Matthew chapter 1. They overlap in names before David, but from David, King David, to Joseph, the father of, uh, as it was considered, of Jesus, they are almost entirely different, except for the names Zerubbabel and Shealtiel. <sighs> and both of them are genealogies of Joseph as the supposed father of Jesus. And so in both of them, there is that kind of distancing of the whole genealogy from Jesus. But human kinship in that society was intensely important. And so it, is, it is an empower, a powerful tool for communicating things. But human kinship is also intensely challenging because you've got all those people back there. In relationship to Matthew, if you read the Gospel of Matthew from David the succession toward Jesus goes through Solomon and then every king after that right down to the time of the Babylonian exile. But in, not in Luke. In Luke, David is the only king in the list, not another king anywhere. This is not a royal line, but ordinary people. It's like, like when Mary and Joseph go to the temple. It's not the high priest that comes out and greets the Son of God or the great, new, the great child that's been born. It's these ordinary unknown people like Simeon and Anna. And it's ordinary people like Mary and Joseph that God works to. The royalty comes only from God. But even though as we look at through all of this through Joseph, there in itself there's a, an addition of the son of in another way. We've had the son of Mary, of course, by the announcement to Mary in Genesis 1 and the whole story. We've emphasized that he has David as his father, and that, of course, is, is, is in the story, uh, in the genealogy. But here there is this other sort of the structure of society statement that he is a son of Joseph. And, it, and that unfolds a whole genealogy. It unfolds a window to look back in time 
and we look back through those names. And it's, it's sort of, I don't know, I've I became, become fascinated with it, I, I'm, you know, but I'm weird uh, in those sorts of things. Uh, you, in the period from David to J Joseph, Luke has about twice as many names as, as Matthew does. And so Luke has all of these names, and again, we have no idea who compiled this, this genealogy at, at all. That it's, I, I think it's sort of unlikely that Luke himself did, but it's possible. Uh, and um, and you all, basically all you can do is kind of see sort of the average of what is a, a generation, and you sort of lo are looking back through this telescope, back through time, and you and you see it in each generation, basically from David down to down to Joseph, is about a little less than 25 years—a normal kind of life of people having children and their children succeeding after them. And if you think about them all the way along, you watch as this life is represented, even though I don't know who these people are, represented by these names, a name, a name, each generation that steps me back through time. And it extends back to David. After that, I know the names because I've read the Bible and all the, the names are, are there. They, it, but in those, that, those intervening years, it covers the span of God's people, God's life with his people and their life with God. Then it extends back to Abraham. And then all the way back, son of Adam, son of God. Jesus embodies not just Israel, not just David and the promises, not even just Abraham and the promises to him. Jesus embodies all humanity's relation to God as beloved children, as God's delight, in spite of all the awful things that they've done, that we've done, that I've done. God's delight is to bring us to him. So I've kind of stretched out these names in average pattern over the history. And you, if you've got the, the list there in front of you from the notes or whatever, you sort of go back through them, you know. And The time when the Romans took over, that's approximately at verse 24 where you have son of Mathat, he lived at the time that Pompey came and desecrated the temple and the Romans began their, their rule then. Or you, you go to the next verse, verse 25, son of Mattathias. He would have been living at the time of the other, another great desecration of the temple that led to the Maccabean revolt and the purification of the temple and Hanukkah and all of, of that. Go down to the, to the next verse, verse 26, go over there a little ways, and you find son of Semein, S-E-M-E-I-N. He would have lived at the time that Alexander the Great came marching through and overthrew the Persian Empire and changed the culture of the whole, whole place. Or you get down to one of the famous names in verse 27, Zerubbabel. That was the time when the second temple was built after the 
after the Babylonian exile, the smaller temple that people both celebrated and cried over when they saw how small it was. Or you go back in through verse 28, and they, the names Melchi and Adai, those are the people that lived in the time of the Babylonian exile. Or go down to verse 28, and you run into someone there called Kosam. He lived at the time when that first temple, that temple of Solomon, was destroyed. The great devastation of the people of Judah that brought an end to the kingdom of Judah after Josiah had been killed, the last of the truly independent kings. Josiah was killed in the, in the time of El-Madam, uh, there a little bit further on in verse 28. And then if you look at the end of verse 28 and then on through verse 29, those names are names of people that lived in the times of the great prophets um, from Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and on down through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And you go all the way back to verse 31 and you find a man named Mena. He lived at that disastrous time when the kingdom split apart and they became the north and the south. And finally, you make your way all the way back to David. Then you're on safe territory. But in those unknown names, we have gone through the trauma, so many broken dreams, so many things that have that had fallen apart, things that were hoped for, all of that waiting for Jesus, as Luke wants us to see. Jesus is the one who has and bears those hopes, but he does it by reaching all the way back to the total bottom of the list, 76 generations back to son of Adam, son of of God. You are my son whom I love. In you I take delight. Those words are spoken to Jesus by God, by God's self who is in Jesus. And through Jesus to all of those that Jesus comes to serve to you. You are my daughter whom I love. In you I delight. I will do things you cannot ever imagine a God doing for you. Amen.